Hello, Richard Lane and John McConnell here with the podcast for the March issue of The Lancet Infectious Diseases. John, let's start with your review about bacterial meningitis. Presumably the issue here is that as bacterial meningitis is so much more serious than viral meningitis, quick and accurate diagnosis is essential. That's absolutely right. In, in fact, the information we have available is that mortality can be as um, high as 27% for, for bacterial meningitis, and that's e- even despite giving appropriate antibiotics. So the, the key point really is to try and diagnose the uh, infection as quickly as possible because there is some evidence that the, the outcome is better the, the quicker that you give antibiotics. What features are the authors pointing out to aid diagnosis? Well, first of all, you would do a physical exam, and if the the doctor felt that they could, they were confident in their diagnosis after the phys- physical exam, then they would give antibiotics. However, the physical exam may not be conclusive at all, in which case they might want to move on to a, a lumbar puncture, and if the results of the lumbar puncture were, con- were conclusive, then they would give antibiotics. In fact, the authors give a, a decision tree to help doctors work towards a a conclusive diagnosis. And so one of the other aids that they mention is the use of CT or MRI scanning. The authors also talk up the use of steroids. Well, they do say that uh, using steroids, and dexamethasone in particular, is as important as giving antibiotics uh, and should be given at the same time as the antibiotic therapy. But overall, the article is an up-to-date reference point for the diagnosis of bacterial meningitis. That's right. It's meant as a, as a very practical guide for doctors who are confronted with an adult patient who might have bacterial meningitis in the emergency room. Moving on, you've also got a paper about the diagnosis of sepsis with an important but sadly negative conclusion. Sepsis is a, is a, is a, is a very difficult disease. It probably kills more critically ill patients than any other conditions. And so it's characterised by a systematic inflammatory response in which you have circulatory collapse, multiple organ failure, and eventually leading to death. Now, it it can have a non-infectious origin, but if it has an infectious origin, obviously you want to get to that diagnosis as quickly as possible so you can give antibiotics if necessary, you can give circulatory support. Procalcitonin has been proposed as as a marker for infectious origin of sepsis for for some time. So what the authors have done here is they've done a meta-analysis where they've looked at the studies of procalcitonin as a a marker of sepsis. But with a clear conclusion that procalcitonin is not a reliable enough indicator to diagnose sepsis. They say that they find that the sensitivity and specificity of procalcitonin to separate an infectious from a non-infectious origin is really quite low and they come to the conclusion that procalcitonin cannot reliably use to differentiate to the potential uh, origins of sepsis. Your leading edge editorial John comments on avian flu. What is this saying? Well it's a subject we're returning to after after a few months. The important point I think we're making here is that the current what you might call Asian strain of H5N1 has actually been with us now for 10 years having first appeared in Hong Kong in uh, 1997 and then it re-emerged in South Korea in 2003 and since then has spread to something like 55 countries in Africa, Asia and in Europe and uh, even in the first few months of 2007 there have been outbreaks amongst uh, poultry in something like a dozen countries including the one which uh, affected turkeys in the United Kingdom early in February. You comment specifically about Indonesia, where you think there seems to be a very specific threat. Well, I think Indonesia is is particularly troubling. It has one of the biggest populations of of any country in the world. 
They're scattered over something like 17,000 islands in the, in the Indonesian archipelago. There are countless numbers of households which are keeping birds in the backyard. We can be fairly confident at the moment, anyway, that the, the risk to human health comes from people who are in intimate contact with birds in, in the backyard situation. So although the big factory farms may act as a, a sort of potent mixing vessel for the avian influenza virus uh, and, and may well be a source for the spread of the virus, that's more of a danger to the birds themselves. The, the danger to human beings, as, as far as we can determine from the available evidence, really comes when, when people are in intimate contact with, with birds in, in the domestic situation. And there's another concern that has come out of Indonesia recently, that it appears that they are no longer sharing their flu samples with the WHO and that they have reached some sort of agreement with a, a drug company to, to supply their flu strains to this drug company. And this has potential information for the knowledge that's available to help track the spread of the flu virus around the world and to develop vaccines. Some commentators, as you point out, think that as the virus has been around for a decade now, actually maybe we're not about to get a pandemic. But you're not saying that. It is one possible conclusion that if it hasn't mutated after 10 years, then then perhaps it's never going to. But I I think if we're going to take the precautionary principle, and and I think given the risks here, we should take the precautionary principle. While it continues to circulate, then I think that the, the, the risk to human health and the risk